Covering 70% of the Earth's surface, the ocean contains much more than the 321 million cubic miles of water that fills its basin. It hosts vital resources that sustain the modern economy, including fishing stocks, oil, and gas reserves, and the undersea telecommunications cables that connect the world's internet users. It contains minuscule life forms that remove billions of tons of carbon from the atmosphere and deep-sea critical minerals that may help power the energy transition. It also hides the military submarines that threaten nuclear retaliation and maneuver for dominance in the waves above. Yet despite the ocean's prominent role in human history, the sheer size and opacity of its murky depths mean that we still know surprisingly little about it. New technology seems poised to change that. And among the more significant factors, including advances in autonomous hardware, sensors, we also have the ability to derive insights from large quantities of data. Welcome to the IQT Podcast. I'm your host, Vishal Sandesara, and today we kick off a three-part exploration into the maritime domain of innovation. Today's episode will discuss global maritime technology developments and dive into the investment landscape. Joining me on today's show are my three friends and colleagues, Kevin Schaefer, a return guest, Diana Keenan, and Abhi Sivananthan. We'll do quick intros. Abhi Sivananthan is the Senior Technology Architect on IQT's Intelligent Connectivity and Compute Technology Practice Team. Prior to joining IQT, Abhi was a CETA at the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, for those of you who know uh, acronyms, assisting in development of next-generation microelectronics. Abhi, welcome to the show. Diana Keenan is a senior associate on the investment team with a focus on enterprise technologies. Prior to joining IQT in 2022, Diana was at Amazon, where she held product management and corporate finance roles within the company across both the Amazon retail and AWS businesses. Diana, welcome to the show. And Kevin Schaefer, a repeat offender here at the IQT podcast, is a vice president and lead for the advanced systems technology practice at IQT, where he developed strategy for identifying new investment opportunities to help solve critical mission challenges faced by the national security community. And prior to IQT, Kevin came from task as a CETA at the National Reconnaissance Office, NRO, for those of you, again, doing uh, uh, acronyms, assisting in development of next-generation optics and sensor systems. Thank you all for being here. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to the conversation today. Why don't we start with you, Kevin? Um, we're talking about maritime technology, innovation in the space and the domain, and certainly I'd like to hear thoughts from everyone, but just to sort of keep things in a round robin fashion, what, what does maritime technology mean? What are the different sort of domains within it? And uh, why do we particularly care to research this domain in the first place? Well, there's really only two domains when we talk about maritime. We largely bucket that into surface and subsurface. And the reasons that we care have really grown, I'd say, the last decade, um, in particular in our interest at Inkutel. Historically, within our day-to-day at Inkutel, anything in the maritime realm, whether surface or subsurface, would be what we would call kind of an off-menu topic area of interest. We'd only periodically see an interesting startup that was doing something in the maritime technology domain. And then, more importantly, we were not receiving that many requests from our government partners for interesting technologies. When you look over the last five years, there's been a rather substantial change in that regard. We're seeing more and more startups, so there's opportunities to engage with them. But more importantly, we're receiving more and more requests, uh, more and more requests from our government partners that this is a growing domain that they are very much interested from both the offensive and defensive stance. And they're looking for where we can provide solutions. So those two things alone don't necessarily make the maritime market interesting. There's a last item that does. And what we're seeing now uh, that Diana, I think, will speak to later is we are seeing full-fledged business cases that are coming about in the maritime market, which historically is not the case beyond just the traditional shipping industry. Understood. Any other comments from anyone else? 
IQT has a history of, uh, of looking into this domain, uh, and this begs the question, you know, with, uh, with sort of our previous exposure, why, why is now a particularly interesting time for us to, to dive back in, to, to overuse a pun? Well, I love the number of terrible puns you can come uh, across. We're at so, two so far. Yes, so we'll see where the conversation floats from here. But like I Great. said, we, we very much are interested in maritime technology. Uh, the applications are very much self-evident. Um, I think everybody's familiar with the Navy, and the reality was there just were not a lot of opportunities for us at Inkytel, and that's changing given uh, you know enabling technologies in other areas. And we are seeing that there are true businesses that can happen within this market which we would like to leverage on behalf of our government partners. Understood. Uh, and just a quick nod to, uh, you know, this isn't, the globe is a global place. The ocean spans much of this, this earth, and certainly we are, are a subset of that. Why should the global community be, uh, be interested or particularly invested in this space as well for, uh, from, from your perspectives? Yeah, I mean, it, to me, the, the maritime industry is fascinating because it, it's different from other industries, right, where it's very U.S.-centric. I think here there really are truly pockets of innovation throughout the world because um, maritime touches everything like you spoke to at the beginning. Uh, and beyond that, there are ways for other countries, for example, to adopt technologies that are being developed in the U.S. very quickly and easily. Um, anyway, that's just different than other sectors. So when we're thinking about this from sort of a market perspective, a landscape, uh, there are certainly incumbents in the space uh, who have been in operations for, for quite some time. And as we're sort of going to be discussing today, there's a number of startups that are now entering entering this industry as well. Uh, just sort of given the incumbents in the space, what are the or the diff- different or distinct value propositions that sort of a, a player that's been in the space for a long time can offer versus what some of these newer entrants are offering? Uh, and I'll address that perhaps to Diana first. Yeah, and I would say, you know, coming off of Avi's comments, um, it really is a global market when we think about it from that market landscape perspective. And it's a market that's been riding off of many historical investments that some of the larger commercial shipping companies have made, um, whether it's ship shipping companies themselves or the shipyards and port environments, um, many defense and naval related activities in other countries as well. Uh, and in recent years, we've seen that global market benefit um, with a supplement of funding from increasing hubs of accelerators and additional investors. So it really has become quite interesting globally. But remember, you know, the maritime environment is vast. The oceans themselves are vast, as you were saying earlier. And it's still a very challenging environment to operate in many dimensions. So that requires a lot of uh, need and innovation to address uh, some of the many difficulties in, in operating in that environment. And it remains very important both commercially um, and from a national strategic perspective. Um, as Kevin was saying earlier, we've been investing in the domain for many years and evaluating technologies and meeting with and working with operators in the domain. Um, but in particular, in the last few years, we've really been struck by the potential and promise of technologies in the space and increasing investment activity there. And I want to call out on the investment side, it's really a shift in the type of technologies that we're starting to see being funded. We're seeing more venture-backed businesses come to the table um, including emerging technology, both at the surface and subsurface, you know, things both in the vessel craft itself, 
communication protocols, and even the autonomy needs there that are increasingly interesting in a space where a lot of historical investment over the last decade or so really went to things that we would maybe consider more defense related, maybe more space related from a communication standpoint, or more so supporting the logistics and supply chain piece of the industry that's always had a, a large emphasis in the space. Um, but we're really seeing more interesting applications that have strategic relevance commercially as well as to our government partners, which we're excited about. That's very interesting. If we're talking about the fact that there exist enabling technologies that perhaps make now uh, a great time for a lot of these startups to, to enter the market, a question to Abhi and uh, Kevin, what are some of these enabling technologies that sort of uh, are coming to fruition now that are in fact acting as the framework of the scaffolding for a lot of these other higher order startups to come into the market? Any specific areas that are moving quicker, faster than others, specifically within sort of the enabling technology space? Yeah, I, I can start to answer that one. The so first of all, going back to the, the differentiation between something on the surface and the subsurface is really going to also illuminate what's going on in terms of enabling technology. So if you think about a vessel or anything floating along on the surface, what does it have access to? It easily can connect with any sort of satellite comms, so you can exfil data rather easily. It has access to the sun, so if you want uh, a primary or supplemental power source, you can put a solar panel uh, on your vessel. Um, additionally, you, if you're in a coastal environment, you're going to have access potentially to a, a cellular network. So every single advancement in the telecommunications world now allows distributed systems to have constant connectivity, which wasn't always necessarily the case. And every single advancement in the power and energy world can be directly applied to one of these maritime applications. The challenge you have is as soon as you go below the surface, you no longer have those things. So there's a whole other kind of area of enabling technologies that, while different from the surface, are still in the development and opening up the door to new use cases, which I think Abhi could better talk about. Yeah, I think as you go below the surface, the enabling technologies become a lot more difficult. Um, one of the, the things with maritime is it is much more multidisciplinary, I think, than, than other sectors where you need power, you need energy, you need communications. They're all really hard and it all has to work together for your 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 vessel to meet a, an application need. I, I think under underwater, that has historically been a domain that's been much more sort of government, defense-centric. But but even there, we're seeing pieces of innovation, um, particularly if you're looking at, like, AI and autonomy development start to bleed over, right? Like, when you're underwater, um, it, those technologies are actually incentivized to, to uh, adopt uh, AI technologies faster. And so I think we are seeing the impact of um, improved technologies uh, becoming deployed. Kevin, when you and I talked in previous podcasts uh, about space, we, I think, uh, ended by understanding that space was hard. Is it, uh, is it safe to assume that also underwater and around water is, is hard for, for other reasons? And if so, what are those reasons? Yes, I, would, um, I wouldn't necessarily use the term hard. I would use what we like to call extreme. So anytime you're operating a system within an extreme environment, there's a ruggedization process that has to happen subsystem by subsystem. That is somewhat true on the surface. It's very much true on the subsurface. It's a different type of extreme than space. So space, subsystem by subsystem, you're going to have to radi radiation harden your components. You're going to have to operate over extreme temperature ranges that go from hot to cold rather quickly. You don't necessarily have those challenges, so you can't directly leverage the development done in space. But it's the same type of challenge. And um, that's an area where more than likely um, 
the vast majority of the development of these subsystem components is going to happen um, for other applications, and then they can eventually be leveraged by Maritime. So Maritime is very much a follower for, I would say, um, 80% of the system, and then it's that final 20% with that 80% in place that can now be closed upon. I see. And I think one of the things that's unique to Maritime, you know, like you said earlier, it's it's vast. Um, so if you're looking to effectively collect data over a certain region, you need a lot of um, systems, and that becomes very expensive very quickly. Uh, you reminded me of a, a fun fact that I think I read in, in all of your collective research, which is simply the fact that I believe some 20-odd percent of the uh, of the sea the sea floor or the seabed has has currently been mapped, leaving much of this uh, of this domain unmapped. Um, what are the reasons for that, and how interesting is that as an area for uh, for innovation and growth in the in the industry. Yeah, I mean, I think I think a lot of companies um, talk about the importance of that, right? If, if something's not mapped, one, when you're uh, operating in that region, you don't have all the information you need, um, but you also don't know what's out there if you haven't done the exploration. So, I do think that's important. I think that's an area um, that there is a lot of global focus on improving, um, particularly, uh, you know, as it comes to looking at. Uh, more critical minerals or even just uh, having uh, more people operating in the ocean, having it become more crowded, um, I think we'll see the the growth of information about the ocean as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Diana, what is it that we're seeing sort of on the global front? So certainly uh, when it comes to areas of interest for national security, I think that's one thing and we'll, talk to the, we'll continue to talk about that. Uh, when it comes to international investment in and interest in, at a high level, what are you seeing on the investment side there? Yeah. So on the investment side, you know, I want to ground us in the sense that this is a very large market, though historically that has not been tremendously VC based. Um, so I think one of the most interesting tr- trends that we're seeing is an accelerating VC interest in the last 10 years in terms of the venture deals that have been completed, as well as the, do- the dollars deployed. So in our research, um, we had seen that over the last 10 years, the actual number of raw investment deals in the VC side had increased five times, and the number of dollars deployed had had tripled over that time frame, which we think is very interesting. So we do see this as an important growing category. Um, the global maritime ecosystem itself, over the last 10 years, we've seen more than $600 billion in capital deployed across the various capital sources. But to caveat that, you know, that includes over 9,000 different companies, really only 5% of those companies are VC-backed today. So it's much smaller. Uh, we're looking at less than $15 billion of VC capital deployed in that same time frame. So while it's a growing category that we want to shine a light on, there's other very large, important categories, you know, such as AI that we've seen explode in the last year in particular, um, that in a dollar magnitude are still you know, more attractive, right? The um, global AI investment is is estimated to near close to 200 billion by 2025. So maritime is still smaller from a VC standpoint, but strategically very interesting from both a technology perspective and then the growth and change and shift that we're starting to see both in the technologies that are being funded and then the interest that we're seeing from partners. Um, We're also seeing some new trends in terms of where the capital is coming from. Historically, we've seen an interesting gap where there was a lot of capital available at the early stages coming from accelerators, coming from governments and philanthropies themselves, and then also at the later stages. So that would include things uh, in the growth stage of the market 
private equity firms, the venture arms of commercial shipping and energy companies, and some of the traditional banking sector. So there is a little bit of a gap between that barbell that VC dollars are coming in. We're seeing an influx of both dual use and defense oriented VC investors that are interested in this space strategically. And a lot of the sustainability goals become quite interesting uh, in targeting maritime applications. So we're seeing a variety of green tech and some dedicated blue tech uh, funds emerging to fund this. So, you know, a lot of encouraging trends that suggest that more capital will be coming to these applications over time, which we're excited about. I remember in your research, you had uh, highlighted the fact that you know a lot of the current uh, focus or, or directionality of, of dollars in the EU, for example, are driven sort of by uh, geopolitical desire to find energy independence. So if you think about the Russia-Ukraine conflict and you think about where energy comes from and how nations in the EU might find independence from, uh, from particular suppliers, uh, a lot of dollars are sort of being spent in trying to solve that problem. Are there any other sort of very glaring uh, tr- geopolitical trends at play uh, across the globe that uh, that are worthy of mention uh, like that. So I think that um, decarbonization and clean energy um, is pushing, you know, particularly the shipping and logistics sector, but maritime at large to to shift. Um, and again, that's not necessarily happening over the next year. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that will change what the, the industry and the supply chain looks like. And that a lot of that's driven by places like Europe. Um, I think in addition to that, too, you have development of things like offshore wind, um, and that's driving the need for for new companies, new technology to help support the infrastructure that's being deployed out in the ocean. I recall in your research, again, you also did a great job in sort of highlighting the current state of affairs, uh, where where you see the next sort of, you know, five to 10 years uh, in terms of developments and way the industry might shape out and then sort of beyond the year 2035 into 2040 and whatnot. Could you give us some uh, collective open open question to you all, just your crystal ball thoughts on, on you know, today we're looking at sort of a very, as Kevin mentioned, non you know, non-interconnected sort of heterogeneous system that isn't taking advantage of all the sensors and hardware that it potentially could be. Uh, but given the enabling technologies in the next midterm, that might change. And then even beyond that, more change might come. Why don't we start with sort of a crystal ball reading of of where things might go and what things might look like at a very high level. We'll start with Kevin and we'll work our way to Diana and Hubby after that. Yeah. So for a drastic oversimplification of what my crystal ball would look like, it's going from just one system to thousands of systems. But more importantly, those thousands of systems are going to have increased uh, functionality and capability at a much lower price point. And that's solely driven by the need for maritime data. And maritime data can take on a variety of flavors. The, the obvious one is you know conditions of seas, weather, things of that nature. But there's also tracking of ships, tracking of other things, uh, deploying kind of sonar for the undersea mapping. But I think that's going to be the big trend on the surface that you're going to have, you know, pushing from maybe there's thousands of relatively low cost, low functionality systems today to thousands of uh, low cost but high functionality systems in the future, which is going to open up uh, doors to lots of different use cases that I I think it would be inappropriate to kind of offer a prediction on what those might be because as these systems become ubiquitous, the innovation is going to come along with it on how to exploit and leverage that data. Well, Diane, over to you. 
Yeah, I think we will see some more success with startups in this space, um, building off of platforms over time that make the barrier to entry for entrepreneurs and new talent um, more accessible to come into this market and innovate. You know, Abi mentioned earlier the interdisciplinary approach that's required in terms of the variety of skill sets. And I think having a few more uh, larger stage successes in the market makes a difference just from a talent perspective of folks coming in and being willing to start companies here. Um, my hope is that we see more businesses uh, make it to the growth stage and build a stronger track record of growth progression to attract more um, VC dollars in, because now you see a lot of earlier exits, which inhibits market growth in some regard, because some of the later stage investors don't have uh, as many options to benchmark against. Um, and I think we will start to see a growing pool of VC dollars uh, across some of the multi-stage and multi-sector firms that, you know, maybe similar to Incutel have historically evaluated this space, but have not had as many opportunities to put capital to work. Uh, so I think that we will see some more deals and some more activity in the ecosystem coming forth. That, that would be my crystal ball at the moment. Great. Thanks, Anna. I'll be over to you. Yeah, I think um, Kevin Diana covered it really well. The the thing I'd add for underwater in particular is I, I think going back to Kevin's point, um, I think it'll be affordable and more accessible. Um, so easier for people to use that aren't necessarily maritime experts. Um, we're already seeing, you know, pockets of that innovation occurring now, and I think that's going to grow. Um, and as Diana mentioned, I, I think the the ecosystem will become more exciting to be a part of, which will also hopefully drive innovation and talent into the, the market as well. And one thing I wanted to follow up on is you didn't ask about where, you know, crystal ball and what the government or an adversarial government is going to do with these technology That's developments. Great question. And this is an area that becomes a bit more difficult to offer an assessment because it's, it's not similar to space or kind of UAVs in that it, the government use case is mirroring exactly what the commercial use case is. It's obvious that commercial satellite imagers take a picture and the government likes doing that too. What the government wants to do with maritime vessels, whether surface or subsurface, a lot of times is completely orthogonal to what the commercial use case is. And what's going to happen in the future is it's more a matter of leveraging the underlying platform itself than leveraging what that company is attempting to accomplish. So some bad examples, if there's an underwater system that can do some unique identification, whether via sonar or a visible imager, um, to grab, twist, or do something underwater. The government might not want to do that, but the government can use that technology for something they planned in the past with a much more expensive, larger system, and it becomes not necessarily uh, supplemental, but uh, just a new way of doing things. And that's one thing to monitor that's both um, you know interesting from a national security standpoint in the United States in deploying those features, but also concerning because, again, if there is this ubiquitous systems worldwide, uh, governments that historically have not had a Navy, given that, you know, running a large Navy is cost prohibitive, may have the opportunity to engage in the maritime domain, which wasn't present before. So that's going to create unique opportunities and challenges when you look at the government side of things. That's very interesting. I'm glad you brought that question on board this podcast. Well, I didn't want to sink the podcast. So. That's pun count up to five, <laughs> six even. That's incredible. Uh, thank you for your propose uh, for, thank you for your crystal ball view I want to bring uh, our last sort of question our last topic back down to ground uh, here in the United States what is it that the US can do 
now, but you know, commercially, uh, in, in government sort of uh, in government sectors, what is it that we can do to leverage maritime commercial innovation um, and take advantage of where we all think it's headed? Uh, and we'll start perhaps with uh, Diane on that one. Sure. Yeah, I think there's a variety of things we can do to help incentivize both the creation and really the longer term scaling of ventures um, prior to early exits or prior to more laborious requirements being put on the entrepreneurs. Um, so I would really love to see you know continued diversity and startup funding from both the government and traditional capital providers. Incutel alone cannot fill all of the gaps uh, that exist today, but we are really trying uh, to connect with other investors and other operators in the space and really play an active role in helping uh, close some of those gaps. So I think supporting that effort, both what we can do and what others can do, uh, and growing a more exciting entrepreneurial ecosystem here will be critical. Um, so that, that, I think, is a huge opportunity for both ourselves, uh, the government, and uh, investors in this space. That's great. Abby? I think the, uh, the U.S. can help test and mature innovative technology. One of the things that's hard in the, the underwater space or maritime at large is you can build a really cool component in the lab, but then when it goes to actually testing it, it's, you know, it's very different based on the specific maritime region you're in. Um, and it's expensive for a startup or a, an early stage company to actually do all of that testing and get the data back they need. So I think there are ways that the U.S. can can make that simpler, reduce that barrier to entry. Great. Kevin? Yeah, just to touch on a couple of points Diana made earlier, there's large incumbents and there is no true U.S. success story. And what's missing from um, the maritime market or maritime technology innovation is the lack of a company along the lines of a SpaceX. So SpaceX paid huge dividends to what we would call the uh, commercial space technology ecosystem because it offered an opportunity for people studying aerospace to go to somewhere other than one of the large prime integrators. Within um, you know the, the maritime engineering side of things, there is no kind of exemplar company you would target um, so it's really just kind of people going out on the you know edge of their skis saying, I want to do a startup. And there's not as big a draw that you see in the space technology world. And I think that's a, that's a huge gap domestically that I don't know how that will change. But if there was that good success story, I think it would pay a, a lot of dividends in terms of people targeting that as an actual opportunity for their career, which isn't present today. Very well. Thank you. I see that we're approaching our time for today's discussion. I want to say thank you to all of you, Kevin, Diana, Abby, for being here. We certainly appreciate it. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to today's episode of IQT Explains on the IQT podcast and part one of our three-part series exploring maritime technology. I encourage you all to tune in for part two to learn about IQT's open source maritime explorations and for part three, during which we will discuss the policy aspects surrounding this domain with our in-house expert, Pat Mitchell, who... I would be uh, remiss if I did not mention wrote the opening narrative of today's podcast. So give him a high five in the halls if you see him. Please make sure to subscribe to the IQT podcast so you don't miss out on future content. And leave us a review or a comment to let us know what you think or what content you'd be interested to see us cover in a future podcast. I also encourage you to check out IQT's website, www.iqt.org, to explore more content about cutting-edge technology to support and deliver insights and capabilities essential for national security mission impact. Thank you. <laughs>